Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Robert Audi, John A. O'Brien Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, giving a talk entitled Moral Perception. Dr. Audi's talk was part of the Edith Stein Lecture Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I'm delighted to be here to give this lecture. And what I intend to do is present ideas conversationally, drawing heavily on the book, but adding here and there. I may be able to do this in 35 minutes. I want to make time for John to present some remarks, and then we'll have discussion on whatever you'd like to pursue. I might start by asking why the topic should be regarded as so important. Well, perception is trusted. What you see is really there. What you see to be so is the case. And at least potentially, perception can help us to act morally and to understand others from different cultures so that we transcend the corrosion of relativism. <clears throat> Let me start with the perception of right and wrong. And here, I want to talk about morally important perceptions in contrast with moral perceptions. A dog can see an elderly man stabbed as he opens his car door in a parking lot. This is a perception of something morally important, but it's not a moral perception. You and I would have a moral perception. We would have a strong sense of wrongdoing. For us, the sight has moral import. For the dog, it's merely the sight of something that may or may not distress the dog or cause any particular movement. Now, I'm getting at what could be called the phenomenological experiential side of perception. There's something it's like to have a perception, and there's something distinctive about a moral perception. But it's very hard to capture just what that is. Moral emotion is a common element in the phenomenology of moral perception. But you could have a moral perception of wrongdoing, or for that matter, of a deed that's just, and not have any particular emotion. You could also have an emotion that is moral without having a moral perception, and the two are related in important ways, but different. One thing I like to say is that emotions can be evidential in moral matters whether we're talking about a moral judgment that doesn't involve perception, as with a judgment on a hypothetical case, or we're talking about an actual perception. It may turn out that your emotion, say one of indignation, arises before moral judgment, but from a perceptual base. So imagine seeing an interview in which the interviewer becomes domineering and intrusive. You begin to feel uncomfortable. You find yourself indignant, and then you realize that you are seeing wrongdoing. So you can have a perception which becomes moral partly by the aid 
of moral emotion, which can be a discriminative response to a moral phenomenon. Now, there is a major question here for philosophers and others who might be a bit skeptical. Can a moral property such as injustice really be perceived, for instance, seen? I'm going to talk mostly about vision as my example of perception, but hearing is important as well. You see a hand here. Can you in the same sense of see, see an injustice? Well, to give an adequate answer, we need a theory of perception. I will talk only briefly in part two now about what perception is, but a few basic points will help us. There are, of course, the five sensory modes. Philosophers talk about seeing more than about the other modes, hearing, tasting, smelling, and touching. And seeing is, of course, very informative. There is a great deal of information one gets from seeing things. And the more complex the object, the more information one tends to get, though it's easy to miss information. Consider seeing a dancer. Does one know what the dance is just in virtue of seeing it? Not necessarily. Can you see a graceful dance without seeing its gracefulness? I think so. You can see what a dog sees. <clears throat> you can see more than a dog sees and still not see the gracefulness, but it seems to me that the gracefulness is there to be seen, much as the wrongness of the stabbing is there to be seen. Now, when we talk about seeing, it's very important to distinguish between the simple case in which an object is seen, say a hand, and the propositional case in which roughly a fact is seen. So seeing a graceful dance is not automatically seeing that the dance is graceful. And we have to be very careful not to assume that any kind of perception is always accompanied by perceptual knowledge. You don't see that the dance is graceful if you don't see the dance, but you can see the dance, alas, even when it is great, graceful, without seeing its gracefulness. So simple perception is more basic than propositional perception, and it need not be conceptual, which is why we can share with animals assuming they're non-conceptual, simple seeing, but they do not share with us propositional seeing, at least where they don't have all the concepts needed for the proposition. So even if a dog could see that the dancer is approaching, the dog doesn't see that the dancer is graceful. Let me now go to part three on the phenomenology and ontology of perception. The phenomenology has to do with the experiential side, what it is like to have the perception, for example. The ontology has to do with the structure of perceptual occasions and what sorts of objects are involved in them. Now, one element that is commonly recognized in perception is what you might call representationality. And this has to do with the qualitative character perception and the way it discriminatively depends on the object. 
So if you look at a hand, your experience represents something to you, and the experience doubtless represents five fingers, though you might not initially think of the fingers as five. And you also have a representation of a hand as open and as then closed. Do you have to have a belief for every bit of information that comes to you in a single perception? That would be a lot of beliefs. When I simply give you an illustration and you see a hand, you may believe there's a hand before you, but do you believe that it is upraised, that it is five-fingered, that it is open, that it is large, or whatever you might believe from seeing the hand? It's very important to see that perception is in a sense over-informative. It gives us much more information than we normally need. There are some seats in the front, by the way. Now, we call an experience non-doxastic when it doesn't entail belief, whereas a doxastic experience does entail belief. So simple perception does not entail believing anything about its object, I think. Propositional perception, of course, does. If you perceive that, say, see that, something is red, then it is red, and you believe it's red, presumably you even know that it's red. So we then begin to see the perception knowledge tie. If you see a thing, you're in a position to know facts about it, even if you don't know them because you don't form the appropriate beliefs. My view is that we have moral perceptions, moral experiences, and that we tend to form moral beliefs and make moral judgments when we have moral experiences, but it's possible to have a moral experience, one based even on perception, and not form the belief you might form, because as with the case of the invasive interview, your emotion that leads to disapproval and gives you the moral perception doesn't lead to belief formation, maybe because you're rather fond of the interviewer. So you have a resistance to believing something to the effect that the interviewer is wronging the subject. Now, the broad theory I hold is one kind of causal theory of perception. On this view, perception is a causal relation between the object perceived and the perceiver. The object produces a sensory experience. And uh, sometimes the experience will have a moral or aesthetic character as well. I've illustrated both, one with the stabbing, one with the graceful dancer. So just to illustrate again in the very simple case, if my hand is not causing you to have an experience as of a hand, you are not seeing the hand. For instance, you could have uh, an experience of a hand that feels on the inside just like seeing the hand, but it could be produced by brain manipulation, in which case, even though there is a hand here, you aren't seeing it. So you could even have a justified true belief that there's a hand before you, though that belief doesn't represent knowledge and isn't based on perception. These are fine points in the theory of perception, and I cover them in my book, Epistemology.
Now, I'd like in part four to proceed to the basis of veridical perception. Veridical comes from veritas, the Latin for truth. So when you have a veridical perception, there really is the object that you seem to be seeing. Or uh, there really is a true proposition where you see that something is so. You see that someone is standing before you and speaking. Now, perception always entails the existence of an object. So you could say it's factive in the sense that if you see X, there is an X you see. But notice that you can have an illusion as where you see an oar partly submerged in water and the oar looks bent. Now your perception is veridical relative to there being an oar, but not veridical relative to the shape of the oar. So if you believed that there's an oar there, you'd be believing truly. If you believe that there is a bent oar or a bent stick, you'd be making a mistake. So we have to be careful in the moral case as well. You could see a moral wrong done and mistake what kind of act you're seeing, thinking that the act is uh, one of play acting, for example. And notice that many, many kinds of moral wrongs, as well as just deeds, can be mimicked. So that again raises the question how we get knowledge, even from veridical perception. You could see a wrong, but think it's play acting. You could see play acting and think it's a wrong, depending on the circumstances. We do know how to sort out in these matters. So I won't go into all the details, but I want to call attention to the problem. Now, regarding the basis of veridical perception, I think that you see things by seeing their properties. So you see the podium by seeing its color and shape. You don't see the whole podium, and notice that what you see is compatible with the thing being paper mache and not really a podium, but just something that looks like one or functions like one. But of course, what you see is wooden and you take it to be wooden. Now, let's carry this over to the moral case. When you see the stabbing, it's virtually certain that this is not an act. It's a parking lot, it's dark, uh, you hear a groan, you see a wallet taken, it's almost impossible that this be anything but a genuine stabbing. So I think that realistically, even though you see the moral wrong by seeing these acts that are physical in a context that's physically apparent to you, you still see the moral wrong. Notice, we don't want to say that you don't see the lectern because you see it by its properties. Why should we say you don't see the moral wrong because you see it by the properties that guarantee it, uh, indeed in a stronger sense of guarantee than your visual impressions of the lectern guarantee that there's a lectern here. It's extremely improbable that you have the visual experience you're having 
while this is mere paper mache and not really the usual academic lecture, but it's even more improbable that there really is a stabbing of an elderly man entering his car in a dark parking lot that isn't a wrong. So that brings me to the question of what counts as the event seen ontologically? What sort of entity is it? Well, I think that what we ought to say is that events such as my raising my hand are dependent particulars. There is an event, and it's slow and deliberate uh, as compared with this event, which is fast. And it's dependent because if there were no hand, there would be no moving of the hand, which you see. So there are things that figure in the causal order, like stabbings, that produce experiences. And these are terms of causal relations. So it's characteristically events that cause other events, and there are acts and events that are grounds of moral wrong, or sometimes grounds of justice, as where you have an equal distribution among needy people. And there you have the causal raw material for moral perception. Now that brings me to part five, in which I develop this somewhat. I indicate just how perception in the moral realm works in terms of the grounds of moral properties. So first, go back to the problem. This is now part A. I mean, um, yeah, clause A under, under part five, subpart A. Moral properties are not observable in the basic way that physical properties are. So let me introduce the notion of a mapping or a cartographic mapping representation. You have a cartographic representation of this cup. From what's in your experience, you could really draw a cup like this. Shape, color, design. So there's a mapping possible from what's given to you in experience to characteristics of the object. Now you can't map wrongness that way, can you? What you can do is map a stabbing. You can indicate the assailant's shape, more or less, the movement of the hand, the knife. I don't want to go into gruesome detail, but I think you see what I'm getting at. But now, it turns out that the properties, that moral properties are grounded on are such that when the grounding properties are present, the moral properties are present as well. So you can map the grounding properties, and they guarantee the presence of the moral property. Moral properties are not brute. They're based on properties of another kind, usually called natural properties, but they're at least non-moral properties. So the wrongness you see in the stabbing is grounded on the um, paining of the victim, the killing of the victim. Causing people pain is wrong. Killing people is wrong. And when you see the base properties, which you can observe in the kind of elementary sense, you thereby see, if you have moral sensibility, the moral property of wronging the victim. So we say that 
moral properties are consequential on, sometimes resultant on, grounded on, non-moral properties. Take um, the wrongness of lying. An act is wrong as a stabbing, or because it is a telling of a lie, or because it is, or on the ground that it is the breaking of a promise. The breaking of a promise is a failure of a certain kind to do a thing promised. That is a non-moral notion, though more complicated than that of a stabbing, and when that notion applies, so does the notion of a wrong. I have to qualify a bit. I'm talking about what is sometimes called prima facie wrongness as opposed to absolute wrongness. A basic ethics course will indicate that breaking a promise could be justified in special circumstances. But that doesn't prevent promise breaking from being wrong in a certain way. And we call the breaking of a promise prima facie wrong to bring out that if there's no excusatory factor, then it's wrong outright, simpliciter. Now, one way to see that even when there is an excuse, we have some kind of wrong, is to notice that there is a residual obligation with a promise breaking to explain to the promisee why one didn't perform. It's not as though the promisee died or said, don't do that, I no longer need that service. Then you wouldn't have any obligation at all. When the promise is broken and not nullified or eliminated as a factor, you have a residual obligation. And even killing in self-defense is wrong at the level of uh, generating a negative so that some explanation or excuse must be given. It can't be just plain okay for one person to kill another. It can only be excusable under special conditions. So very roughly then, we see moral properties like wrongdoing, by seeing other properties, particularly properties that are the grounds of wrongdoing. And we can be quite sure that those grounds obtain. Only a very strong skeptic would raise questions about whether we actually saw a stabbing if in perfectly clear circumstances we see um, a teenage boy stab an elderly man and take the wallet and run. And I think that only very skeptical people will deny that a wrong is done when a stabbing like that is done. But still, the dog sees a morally important phenomenon. We have a moral perception of it. The moral import comes through to us experientially. Okay, so we have a case in which we perceive moral properties, such as wrongdoing, by perceiving non-moral properties, which we can be very sure are there. And I think we can know that wrongs are done by perception. Moreover, it seems to me that we don't know in these cases inferentially on the basis of premises. We know in a more direct way. So now I want to develop that idea by giving you a contrast with anger. 
If you imagine parents whose child comes home on a Saturday night and confesses to wrecking the family car, it's easy to imagine an outburst. So if upon receiving this announcement, the father gets red-faced and screams and how could you possibly? It isn't hard to be quite confident that you have seen anger. And yet, notice that an actor can mimic this. So if you really want to be skeptic, you would say, no, no, no. You just infer that there's anger from these manifestations or apparent manifestations. You really don't know that there's anger. Well, you can be skeptical if you like. And certainly you are seeing the anger by seeing something else. But notice, in the case of anger, you're seeing by manifestations where mimicry is possible. In the moral case, you're seeing by grounds. Now, manifestations are evidences of the thing they manifest, and grounds are evidences of what they're grounds for. But the relation between the grounds of wrongdoing and the stabbing is very, very tight. You cannot have the stabbing without the wrongdoing. I maintain that that connection, in fact, is a priori and necessary. You can see that it's so by reflection. The relation between the manifestations of anger and the anger itself is causal, and there can be mimicry. So we're really more secure about seeing wrongdoing, if we see a stabbing, than we are about seeing anger in the case of the outburst. But for us commonsensical persons, we shouldn't be skeptical in either case. In the context of the news of wrecking the family car, the normal father's outburst is a sign of anger and you're seeing terrible anger. In the moral case, a stabbing is very, very secure grounds for wrongdoing and you're seeing wrongdoing. So I want to say, both cases are cases of seeing one thing by seeing another, but contrary to what many might think, our moral perception may be more secure than some of our psychological perception that we tend to trust more. So that's one of the points I want to make. Now, I also have said that moral perception, like other perception, is non-inferential. You don't infer from the fact that there's a stabbing to there being a wrong. You can do that if you're hearing about something secondhand and you don't see a stabbing and you're told the stabbing occurs, you might draw an inference. Well then, um, surely there was a wrong. But I think that when you are confronted with something that patently is indicated by what is directly in your visual field, you don't normally draw an inference. Now, what is an inference? Many think that where there's information processing, there must be an inference. But think about that a minute in the context of facial recognition. I look at John and I recognize him. Now, did I infer that it's John from the shape of his face, which I now note, uh, the hairline, all of that information was no doubt conveyed to me at a glance, but I didn't propositionalize it. Compare that with a case in which you run into someone you haven't seen 
in 15 years at a rail station. And you aren't sure who it is, though the person recognizes you. Now, if the only way you figure out who it is is to find a scar that you're sure nobody else has, that is a case of inferential knowledge of who it is. That is not how facial recognition works. I want to say moral recognition in the perceptual case is like facial recognition. It is not a case of inference. Inference is more intellectual. It's internal reasoning. You could call it the mental tokening of an argument. So there is a thought of at least one premise and a passage of thought from one or more premises to something we can call a conclusion with a sense of some support relation between the former and the latter, between one or more premises and the conclusion come to from the premise. So inferences are phenomenally real. They take up some conscious space. I don't think there's anything in conscious space that does the work of inference when I just see John and recognize him as John. There could be, as I said, maybe I need to draw an inference because he looks too much like someone else. But ordinarily, that isn't how it goes. Now, I don't deny that what you know non-inferentially, you might know inferentially. That isn't the point. But I don't want the insecurity of inference to infect the relative security of perceptual judgment and knowledge, especially in the moral case. So that's why I want to emphasize that it's by the grace of nature that our brains process information very fast in many cases, but that doesn't have to be done by the relatively explicit and conscious root of inference. I said I'd be brief, so let me go to part six, the final part. I've already really distinguished between basic and non-basic perception. For instance, with anger, and of course with the dancer. And I don't want to say that moral perception is a basic kind. I don't think you have a moral perception unless you also have a non-moral perception connected with it. But uh, as I've said, if you want to insist that whenever one perception is based on another, there isn't a real perception, then I can't even recognize people um, directly, because after all, my perception of John is based on my perception of color, shade, hairline, etc., etc. Okay, I've illustrated that moral perception is a basis of moral knowledge. I've illustrated how that goes with the grounding properties that you are acquainted with in an ordinary perceptual way, being a very strong evidence of a moral property being present, like injustice, wrongdoing. It's easier to give negative than positive examples, by the way. But if you wanted a positive example, uh, the contrast with a negative one, I can give you that. Let's think of a case in which a helicopter lands where UN supplies are being given to the needy, where you have uh, population displacement, as too often happens in the world. Well, you can imagine boxes being laid out for needy families that are gathered in groups. And now try to imagine that you simply catch sight 
of one needy family having no box and another needy family a little bit off to the right having two boxes. Immediately, that kind of disproportion presents itself as an injustice. Whereas, positively, the thing you'd expect is one box of food per needy family. You have uh, a coincidence of need with distribution, and that gives you a sense of it's just. This time there's been no bribery, there's no preferential treatment of the nephew, of the pilot, etc. Okay. Now, C in the last part, to the effect that moral knowledge is dependent, indicates that the dependence is epistemic and not inferential. So I've said your knowledge of the wrongdoing in the stabbing case is not inferential. It's a case of seeing right off a wrong. But I don't mean to say there's no epistemic or roughly evidential dependence of your judgment, if you make it, on other factors. But the other factors don't have to be judgments. Rather, it's like this. If you didn't have justification for attributing a stabbing, you wouldn't have justification for attributing a wrong. But it doesn't follow from the dependence of your overall judgment on the perceptual inputs that the inputs had to be formulated propositionally and yield an inference. So very roughly, an epistemic dependence doesn't have to be an inferential dependence, though it can be. An inferential dependence will normally yield an epistemic dependence. Now, why does it matter? Well, whenever there's an inference, you have the problem of having to know the premises in order to know the conclusion, let's say. Or there's the possibility of an invalid inference. Perception is a more nearly surefire way of coming to know things than inference, if we're talking about certain kinds of circumstances. Now, I think moral perception is possible for any normal person, and that it's a basis for cross-cultural understanding. So if you try to imagine human development, you know from imagining a wide range of cases that very early in life, children understand the uh, badness of violence and the goodness of being nursed, loved, gently aided. And so the basis of moral understanding that yields what's needed for moral perception is not hard to acquire in an elementary way. The subtleties are another matter. But I think uh, there are cases in which we know very small children react morally to being treated differently than their peers. Just imagine visiting a family and giving different sized candy bars to the two siblings about the same age. Very quickly, the sense of disparate treatment that's undeserved arises. So the sense of disproportion needing a justification is one of the elementary starting places for moral development. That goes with the idea that one of the grounds of injustice is unequal treatment. Now, it's hard to define inequality, but we are 
I think, sensitive to gratuitous inequality in treatment of persons. And we are, of course, sensitive to violence. So just to illustrate before I wrap up, consider a very tiny child who sees a babysitter slap the sibling who has spilled milk with the result of tears and screaming. I think there's a sense of shock and you can, I think, imagine, and I think I've seen cases in which the sibling gets upset, even though it's the other one who was slapped and hurt. You can compare similar screaming where the sibling who's hurt uh, stubs the right toe, and you don't get the same reaction. We seem to be keyed to responding negatively to violence to those we relate to and care about. In a way, we don't respond to mere pain from natural happenings. Now, of course, we can be distressed by pain as well, empathy. But the sense of empathy is different phenomenologically from the sense of violation that I think occurs very early. Now, my thought is, in human development, there is a sense of moral properties that precedes the development of moral judgment and paves the way for it. Some of this is empirical. I leave room for developmental psychology to fill in details. But this is a picture that I think accords with much of what is already known developmentally. So there are some positive implications of what I'm saying here for moral education, for moral discourse, for international relations. There is moral knowledge. It should inform moral education. It should be a basis of <coughs> discussion among us and a way of arriving at intercultural understanding. I'm going to stop there and give the floor to John. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Professor Audi, and I will offer just a brief response, as we often do, to uh, launch the discussion. Now, I want to thank uh, Professor Audi for his carefully wrought lecture in defense of moral perception. It seems to me that he does, in behalf of the doctrine of moral perception, what J.L. Mackey did in opposition to it. Whereas Mackey presented a sophisticated version of the denial of moral values and of moral perception, Robert Audi has presented an equally sophisticated, indeed an even more sophisticated version of the affirmation of moral values and moral perception. Now, as I read, uh, Professor Audi's book, Moral Perception, and heard his lecture, I was struck by the deep kinship between his work and the work of the great phenomenologists on the same subject of moral perception. Let me briefly explain some of the points of kinship, and then I will pick out one important aspect of value perception and ask Professor Audi to say a little more about it. Well, 
Husserl and Scheler and their students clearly saw the thing that Professor Oni calls moral perception. They called it in German a certain Wertfühlen or value feeling or feeling of value. And they contrasted it with what they called Werterkennen or knowing about uh, value. Now the idea is that we can achieve knowledge about the moral value of an action without feeling the value, that is, without encountering the value in its immediate givenness. If we infer that the action must have a value, then we know about the value without any value feeling, or as the phenomenologists say, we know about the value without experiencing it in its intuitive presence. Now suppose I see someone behave ungratefully. Instead of immediately feeling the ugliness of that behavior, I may subsume the behavior under a general principle that I bring in, namely the principle that ungrateful behavior is bad. Through this subsumption, I think of the behavior as bad. This is a, an inferential cognition of the badness, and it is very different from concretely perceiving and feeling the badness. The value as inferred is kept at a distance from us, so to say, but the value affects us in an immediate and personal way when we feel it concretely. Now, if I read Professor Audi correctly, he wants to affirm in his theory of moral perception what I have just related from the phenomenologist about this Wertfühlen, or feeling of value. Certainly, Professor Audi's refusal to reduce moral perception to any kind of inference falls right in with the approach of the phenomenologist. And in fact, I may uh, have brought, given the background that many of you have in philosophy, brought uh, Professor Audi's study of moral perception a little more into focus by articulating it in these phenomenological terms. But if something has gotten lost in the translation, he is here to set the record straight. Um, there's one important point made by the phenomenologist that I don't recall Professor Audi discussing, but I think he would agree with it. They pointed out that we cannot live a committed moral life if we apprehend value only by inference. A really committed moral life can only be lived on the basis of that living encounter with values that they call the feeling of value and that uh, Professor Audi calls moral perception. Now, for the aspect of moral perception on which I would ask Professor Audi to say more, he, Professor Audi, is a value realist, and his understanding of moral perception is inserted within his realism. The question arises for us realists how it happens that if we really have a value perception that puts us in touch with real values, how it happens that we have such difficulty agreeing with each other on value matters. 
Whence all these interminable and seemingly insoluble moral debates? Now, Professor Audi addresses just this question in chapter four of his book on moral perception. The phenomenologists address it also, but in a somewhat different way. They pick up and develop the old Aristotelian idea that our moral perception is strongly conditioned by our moral character. In particular, they have developed the idea that some people fall prey to moral value blindness because of some serious character deficiency. We all know from experience how our perception of the excellences of another person is blocked if we feel envy for that person. We all know from experience how our perception of our own moral weaknesses is blocked by self-love so that we perceive weaknesses very clearly in others, even though we commonly are blind to the same weaknesses in ourselves. On the other hand, we know that a deeply grateful person will perceive and feel deeply the generosity of other persons. That person's moral perception will register all kinds of good in the moral world that are lost on the ungrateful person. It is indeed a remarkable fact that our sense perception of the world is not particularly disrupted by character failings or particularly improved by strengths of moral character, but that the moral perception of which he spoke is highly dependent on our moral character. And so I would put to Professor Audie the question, isn't this connection between moral perception and moral character an all-important part of any defense of moral perception. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.